0: Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellingson with the Digital Education Podcast, and I'm doing a follow-up conversation uh, with Thomas Arnett of the Christensen Institute. And we started a conversation in the fall about value networks. I get super excited about it because it's 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 given words to ways I think. I think it gives words to and even just concepts to to things that I was naturally inclined to, or even just you know, discovering in in my own way. And he he has a follow up report to that first one in the first conversation. It's called the hidden forces that help or hinder learner centered education. And we're going to jump into this. But the opening paragraph, I think, says what we all feel and what we all know in education. You know The conventional model of schooling is outdated and overdue for replacement. As learners make their way through high school, survey results show that close to 66% end up disengaged. Those who successfully navigate the system gain a narrow set of academic skills that may or may not align with their individual needs, interests, and strengths. And as a side effect of conventional schooling, learners often form fixed mindsets about their abilities and see their value and identity through the narrowing framework of academic ranking systems. And, and I think this is something that resonates with me because, you know, in a lot of my work, we talk about what about our work is leads to current flourishing, but leads to also future flourishing for individuals and communities. And I'm going to read one last paragraph, and then, Thomas, I want you to just jump in and and roll with it with me. But on page four of this report that I'll link to, you say, organizations do not live in isolation, and organizations' value network represents the context of individuals, other organizations, institutions, and regulations it interfaces with to establish and maintain its model. Schools' value networks often include local, state, and federal education agencies and policymakers, learners and their families, employee unions, voters and taxpayers, the post-secondary education system, community organizations, vendors, teacher preparation pipelines, and philanthropic donors. An organization's value network is the dominant influence on its priorities. Okay, so... Big overall question. We know something's not right and we're building it. And, and you've kind of given us this framework or given me in particular this framework of thinking about value networks. And then you read that about what your value network is. And it's like, what real control do I have? Number <laughs> one. But help, help me think through and help us as educators and as school leaders and as people who do this, help us think about this idea of value networks as as being the dominant influence on its priorities, as the organization or the school's priorities?
1: Yeah. Well, first, let me just say, Eric, thank you for engaging with these ideas. I'm so thrilled to hear that they resonate. And to answer your question, then, let me start by saying, sharing a little bit about where we think this paper and these ideas really add value. I think in education in general, there's been a lot of great work to to look into what do better versions of schooling, better versions of instruction look like. Um, There's programs out there that show us what do better models, how do they work and how would you implement them? But I think there's something that's often neglected, which is the context in which those models emerge. Because sometimes you may have a really great program it's kind of on the fringes. Maybe it's, you know, a special program within a district. Maybe it's a private school program. And then you try and replicate that in another setting and it just doesn't work. And our insight from this paper is that the value network that something sits within or that context, that ecosystem or that that environment that it sits in shapes, <clears throat> shapes its evolution, shapes the direction that it that it goes, it shapes what it can or can't do. And so looking at that context is super important. I'll I'll maybe relate an analogy. I recently read a newsletter. um, The author of this section of this newsletter was Dan Willingham, who's a prominent psychologist in education. And he talked about how, if you wanna change your behavior, we often think that it's about willpower. It's about how do I I just, you know, double down and motivate myself and, and try harder. Um, this is probably what a lot of us have done with New Year's resolutions at this time of year, but he says one of the best ways to actually change your behavior is to change your environment. And he tells this story about um, having intentions to to improve his physical fitness, um, and those intentions falling by the wayside until he, uh, I think, he took a new job out of out of graduate school, and he found himself in a community at the university he was at where there were lots of people that were into running and jogging, and he fell into that community, and that community just made it easier. Um, and one of the general takeaways he points out is that for people, whether they do or don't something, hinges a lot on how easy or hard is it to try and do that thing in the context within <clears throat> within which you live. Well, I think it's the same thing for for organizations. We often think that you just you figure out what the right program is, the right model, the right instructional strategies for students. And then you just need effective leaders who can figure out how to implement those. But leaders, I don't mean, you know, I don't mean I hope that people don't take away that like, well, leaders are powerless. They just live in a context that shapes their behavior. That's not that's not true. But I think it's helpful for leaders to realize, well, how does my context shape me? And what is possible or not possible within this context, given the other forces I'm contending with? And so, you know, that question of like, okay, if if you're in a school, what is your value network? The places to look are um, who are, or what are the influences that shape access to resources, like access to funding, or that, that really shape priorities or processes. So for example, you know, for for public schools, states are a huge part of their value network because the state is where you get your funding. If you're not doing things above bar or you know in the, along the lines of what um, you know the state requires, you run the risk of of you know really getting into the trouble with this with your state, um, not having access to grant programs. Um, states also often dictate th- things around the types of policies and practices you need to. You need to um, follow, and so that's one big influence. But there's others as well. Um, you know, for a school system, your your staff and the kind of the practices and the the habits and the ways of doing things that they bring with them when they when they join your organization, um, you know, they end up shaping in the day to day decisions of your organization. They end up shaping a lot of the the priorities and the and the practices um, on a day to day basis. Um, You also have, you know, families and families can, you know, they can talk to the administration to school, they can talk to their teacher, they can show up at school board meetings. So they have an influence as well. But one of the things, one of the questions we were getting after we wrote this paper um, was people are asking, so what's the difference between a value network and stakeholders? Because they seem, they seem like, okay, they're the same thing. And in a lot of sense, they are the same. I I don't want to say they're two distinct categories. There's a huge amount of overlap between value network and stakeholders. But what the concept value network tries to draw attention to is where does the influence over the organization's priorities actually lie? Because often when we talk about stakeholders, we talk about it in a real ideal way, in a way of you know who should we design a program for, who should it serve, um, and those are good conversations to have. And the reason they're good to have is because the stakeholders that you should be serving aren't always the people in the value network that have a lot of influence over actually shaping the priorities. And the practices of the organization so um at this point we don't yet have a you know any kind of rubric for really analyzing who are the particular influences in your value network and how much influence do they have but i think it is still helpful as a concept to be able to look and say you know if you're a a, a public school district you know here's the influences in your value network and the kind of priorities that you're going to have based on those influences versus If you're an out of school program, you know, you're getting your funding from different places, you're serving potentially a different population, you know, how does that lead to a different set of priorities for that context? Or if you're a private school or a micro school in the private school space, all of them have different value networks. And when you look at a lot of the ways in which their programs evolve and the ways in which they they serve their students, a lot of it traces back to what was important in that value network versus what wasn't important in that value network.
0: Well, and I think sometimes like as we think about it, because as you were talking, that question for me, stakeholders came right to the top of my mind, right? You know, as as, as a school leader, we focus so much on stakeholders, we focus so much on these things. But I think in, in that sense of stakeholders, so often we think about it as a transaction, you know, a mm-hmm. transactional relationship where rather than, you know, I think this idea of value networks is you're looking at this. Us together, part of this process, whether you know, and I, I've, I've been part of multi-site districts or multi-school associations, where even within that, um, you know, in the autonomy that you have as a as a school, but then you're also part of something bigger locally. I, I'm wondering before I I want you to share a couple anecdotes or vignettes from some of your research. But I, one of the big things I'm wondering about this idea of innovation and disruptive innovation, and then just even this idea of value networks, because you do talk about it as, you know, does the leader have control? Does the organization have control, or is this just something that 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 at the at the micro level gets dictated to them, or they become powerless to? Mm-hmm. Because we've so long in education have, have looked at the macro kind of innovations and tried to force them on people. And you even mentioned in this article, which I love, it's hard to duplicate models across the board. And disruptive innovation often comes micro or localized. So mm-hmm. how do we think about this? And I want to drive to not to the to the macro policy level, but to the micro level. What would be your encouragement before we maybe get into vignettes or tie them into the vignettes of what you've experienced Mm-hmm. what what would be your, you know, encouragement to say, hey, you know what, you have the ability to adjust, to build, to expand your value network?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I'm going to point to two ideas. First off, I think teachers
1: live in a really interesting space when it comes to value networks. There's a lot of things that a teacher can't control. They can't, you know, they get handed, here's your roster, here's your schedule, here's your curriculum, here's what you have to cover. but because of the professional norms in education, when a teacher closes the door to their classroom, in many places, there's a lot of freedom of what you do during that hour when, when you're with your students. And I think of that, that professional, you know, the professional regard we have for teachers and the autonomy we give them within their classrooms is kind of a buffer against the value network. So I think, you know, teachers in some ways, they are constrained. You can't, you know, change the school schedule on your own or you can't change the the curriculum um, and the learning standards on your own. But for what you do in the classroom, there's a lot of freedom you have to innovate and change, um, you know, without needing necessarily a, a an authorization from the broader value network that you sit in. So I love, for example, when I hear about teachers that have, you know, flipped their classroom or got implemented master-based learning in their classrooms, um, totally on their own, maybe taking advantage of, You know, the pioneers, the work of the pioneers of the flipped classroom, or something like the modern classrooms project that's helping teachers learn how to do blended master based learning. Um, There's a lot of great resources out there for teachers that have the appetite to say, let me take this context that I live within and design what works for this context. The other thing I'll point out, and this. This ties into the broader research that our work draws on around disruptive innovation. One of the big insights from disruptive innovation is that the most powerful disruptive innovations require not just a technology. That's what people often focus on is what's the latest and greatest technology. But it's not just a technology. It's a technology that enables a new business model within a new value network. And so the most impactful disruptions are actually not a technology disrupting a technology. It's a whole value network disrupting a whole set different type of value network. So value networks, I think, are real important. But then that does raise the question of, like, well, what do you do if you're already in an existing value network? If you're the leader of a school in a district or you're the superintendent or a district administrator in a district? Well, one of the things we've also seen is, is the advantage of separation, So you may, as a district leader, you maybe can't change the value network you sit in, but you might be able to carve out a space within your district where a different value network can be formed. So one of the examples, to get the examples in the paper, one of the examples we cite is the Village High School in Colorado Springs, Colorado. It's a district school, but the school um, has a distinctive value network from the rest of the district. Um, they started off as a virtual school, um, and the, the, the principal there at the school said, Hey, you know, this offers a lot of flexibility that we could take advantage of to pr- create a more engaging experience for students. So we want to take what was at the time kind of a crummy virtual school. And they developed it into a really cool, flexible blended learning program where, um, you know, students are, are, are are moving at their own pace, going in, in, you know, more individualized progressions for their coursework, but also having the flexibility to do things like learn about other countries and cultures by touring the restaurants in the community and trying their cuisine and meeting the restaurant owners, or for physical education, going up in the mountains and hiking, or for state history going and touring historic sites in the state. And they can do that because they aren't so bound to, hey, we've, learning has to happen in a classroom at a specific time. But anyway, to talk about, okay, so where what's their value network? What enabled this to happen? I think one was the designation as a virtual school, created different flexibilities under state policy. Another big key was, um, you know, often these programs, they don't start off trying to be alternatives to mainstream education. They often appeal to students who either, are either disengaged or maybe totally unengaged students who have dropped out, or families that are willing to say, "Look, I my kid is doing fine in school, but I actually want a different experience, and I'm willing to give up a lot of you know the programs that families expect from a conventional education to try this other thing." And so, the types of families they recruited in the early days really had an important role in shaping their priorities. Um, you know, it was a school that families could opt into. And then also the type of staff that they were attracting, that they were saying, look, we have a certain type of program we're trying to run, and we need staff that align with this vision of what we're pursuing. So I think, I think of them as an example of, you know, still within a district, but within the district carved out a space where you could assemble a different type of value network that could support a program that was pursuing different priorities um, and evolving in a different direction than conventional education.
0: Well, I, I love that example too because people, you know, like especially district leaders or you know big system leaders, they don't always feel like they have the power to innovate per se, right? And so that ability to be able to say, "Hey, you know what? Here's an area where we can maybe try something different," because because you're already in many ways. I mean, I think the gist of it in that case was there that we we weren't doing well in this with this group of students. And mm-hmm. so how do we create an opportunity for those students to engage, re-engage, and, and to learn? And, and I think it's that that really interesting idea, the learner-centered kind of model of education. And, and you, you look at, uh, plus that school, you look at the MET, uh, it's the Virtual Learning Academy Charter School, as you, you know, as you mentioned, Iowa Big, Village High School, and then Embark Education. I really love the, the you've thrown Embark Education in there. <laughs> because because the idea, it, it's not really a school, but it's learner-centered education. Help us, you know, even as educators who think about this straight from a school sense, that learning happens in other places too, um, you know, that that can expand opportunities. And for them, where they've even put like parameters on who they're going to be, because this is where we're going to have the most effect.
1: Yeah. So Embark, you know, for those who haven't read the paper, fascinating program. It's a micro school in Colorado, in uh, in Denver, that operates out of a coffee shop and a bike shop that are right next to each other in this little strip um, in this neighborhood in Denver. Um, and, um, you know, the founders kind of came from a background experience of Montessori education, but they were trying to kind of take things to a next level and figure out how do we do this out in community with the community? Um, and so they, you know, they, they had these initially this coffee shop um, that Montessori schools were doing field trips to, and they decided, well, how can we take this to the next level? And actually, instead of having this be something that you leave the school to go experience for a moment, how can we make this the core of the learning experience. Now, what's interesting, though, is they were also deliberate about saying like, we need these to be successful businesses. Um, you know, they're, the businesses in part support the revenue that the school needs to, to operate. And so they're not businesses run by students. They actually hire um, adults, um, you know, to run the coffee shop. Um, but they've they found really cool ways to leverage Kind of the unique thing that students bring by being in that context. So I think there's a story we share in the um, briefly in the paper about how um, one of their coffee suppliers went out of business and they needed to find a new coffee supplier. And if it were just a standalone coffee shop, they'd probably have to make that decision really quickly and just move on because the, you know, this the, the shop manager didn't, wouldn't have a lot of time for it. But because they had these students on site, this was a thing where they could say, look, let's let's give the students responsibility for figuring out where should we be supplying, uh, you know, what supplier should we should we adopt now that we need a, a new supplier. And the students had the time to really dig into the research and learn about, you know, ethical sourcing of coffee and to to go interview and meet with other coffee shops in their area to get recommendations and reviews and um, to do a lot of this back end research that the coffee shop alone wouldn't have had as much time for to then enhance the value of the coffee shop. They've also talked about students organizing broader, um, like community events, evening community events with the other businesses on that same street with the other, you know, the, the residents in that neighborhood, um, something that'd be hard to organize if it was, you know, just, you know, just the people working at your business, um, taking it on. Um, but all that's to say that like they've, they're really able to think differently about the types of learning experiences they give students because they sit in this very different value network of um of of operating out of these two businesses being within a neighborhood that they're active community partners and participants in this neighborhood um and then also just you know the nature of in some ways being a private school and having a lot of flexibility in terms of there's not a lot of regulation that tells them how they have to operate
0: i, I love it and and when you come back up to san francisco or bay area sometime i got to take you to the old school cafe and it's it's a it's a youth um it's a youth run jazz themed supper club Oh, cool! for cool. 16 to 22 year old, ki- you know, at risk, you know, students who've, you know, the system in many ways has failed them and they've not done well in it. And it's uh, run by a college classmate of mine who has um, done amazing yeah. things. But, you know, it is this place where you're talking about this learner centered, how do we solve problems? How do we learn? What do we need to do business and all of the different aspects of it? in in so many cool ways to think about this. Let, let me go you know because because I could go all over the place and I feel like there's so many questions to ask. I want to ask one last question because we kind of talk about you know the, a couple of those examples that are highlighted in in the paper that you do research on talk about like what a value network is and what a, how a leader can think about like the the localized what could I do um it, it, there is a statement in, at the macro level, is in the paper that says if public funding is only available for models that carry the hallmarks of conventional schooling learner centered options will be largely limited to families with the time and means to build or pay for private learner centered options mm-hmm. so that 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 kind of you know kind of gets me to a lot of the work that I've done but that's one of the big questions like how do we maybe take some of that pu- public funding and unleash or unleash this innovation that can happen localized to, to say, Hey, you know what, how do we do this? I mean, have you, what, what are some of the thoughts or some of the encouragements there as we kind of started locally and with some of these examples and then go back to the top?
1: Mm-hmm. This is a tricky one. And I think this is one I'm still wrestling with, and this, there's not a clear answer to, but there's people working on, on this. I would say, there's kind of two ways that it can happen. and you know probably people depending on their politics favor one or the other. Um, one way is within a district, you know, can a district find um, you know funding that is more flexible? Um, you know, maybe it comes through through innovation grants. Maybe it comes from being a part of an innovation zone. um, maybe it comes from private philanthropy. But finding funding to carve out these separate spaces that can be somewhat autonomous, somewhat, um, you know, independent from conventional schooling. And I think a key insight is don't try to build another school, because if you're trying to build another school, you often have to make it look like a conventional school. But instead, you start in something like the out of school space, the after school space, um, Maybe it's a tutoring program, or maybe it's a program that is schooling, but it's, you know, targeted at certain populations that schools haven't um, haven't been able to serve well in the past. Like whether it's, you know, getting dropouts to come back in to, and re-engage with the schooling or homeschoolers who have left, offering something that attracts homeschoolers that may even only be part-time. Um, but I think that's that's one way in which public funding can start to go in these directions is thinking creatively about how do we start these things that may not be schooling but use the where we have some discretionary funding channel it towards developing these types of programs and then over time improving the programs growing demand for those programs as they improve and with that growing demand then being able to justify hey here's why we need to change district policy or even change state policy because there's this really successful thing that that deserves more more funding on the other side of the table is you know i think at the state level um, there are states experimenting with things like education savings accounts or other forms of discretionary funding that they give to students and families, and just letting families decide, you know, what's best for my student. You know, is it to attend a private school or maybe it's not, maybe it's to go to my district school, but also have some funding to access after school programs or summer school programs that we wouldn't otherwise be able to access. Um so I think that those also create that that flexibility of funding. But I, but to come back though, I think this is actually an area where we need more people discussing these ideas and really getting getting the ideas out there to help justify to both district and state you know, district leaders and state policymakers. Hey, look, here's where we need to change the way um, education funding works to create more funding opportunities for these types of things and not have it all locked into. Um, only funding conventional schools.
0: Well, and, and I think I love it. I, I heard somebody say recently, especially this person was a school choice person, right? Heavy, you know, on the school choice side of things. He's like, I kind of, I think I kind of had it wrong for a lot of years. We focused in on, on um, unleashing demand, but we never thought about the supply, right? And so, how about we get creative? And I think we're seeing that, and you've displayed that with some of these examples. We're seeing that new supply of like, hey, here's an option. Here's an opportunity. Here's this. And and you look at that. I, I always use the example of I have um, a sister who lives in Wisconsin and she has three kids and they're all, you know, they're all pretty much in high school now and, and it's all doing something different. Mm-hmm. One's co- going to the kind of in this partnership program with the community college where he's doing flight training and and he's going to class. And he's anybody's he's got some classes at the traditional high school, but then he's got some at, the, at that at the community college so that he can do pilot stuff. The second one is she loves agriculture. So she goes to a different school that has an ag program and she's on campus every day and then the third one is super social but a really good athlete and so does this and so she does a hybrid virtual charter school where she's in class some of the day and then and then online other days and you know and so it's really interesting even for me to see within the same household three right. options to an opportunity and in that community which is a fairly rural community they were they're you know kind of trying to say hey how can we create more Supply more opportunities, more choices on that side of things for students, and and so I think that's that's super interesting. So so as you think about this this value network stuff, learner centered education, in a you know disruptive innovation, and you, you're kind of like putting it all together, right? Mm-hmm. What's a question that you don't think school leaders, educators are asking enough of?
1: That's a good one. What are they not asking enough of? I think it's even knowing the right questions to ask, frankly. I think what I hope our work on Value Networks does is helps people kind of step back and see that bigger picture context, because I think it's so easy to just be in the weeds of you you know, where you, where you're working and the work you're doing that you don't see the constraints that you're operating under, but you also don't see where the opportunities are to go beyond those constraints. So I think it's it's asking the questions that help you step back and see you know where where am I limited where is it that my innovation efforts are going to fall short because I sit in an ecosystem or value network that doesn't align with what I want to see happen but also where are the the places to step outside of that or steps uh, you know sideways within that and find the pocket where the innovation can actually happen
0: it is interesting that, and and you and I get the blessing, right? You know, as you, you did this work on these different sites, I'm sure there's others that you found that like, oh, here's another one. Here's another one. Here's an opportunity. And I think the last 10 years I've been in, in about 300 different schools, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in multiple different countries. And so then you see that. And one of the encouragements I give to leaders all the time is like, listen, you've got to take yourself and people on field trips and go find your friends and fellow educators in other places who are trying to solve really hard problems in different places because Mm -hmm. then you'll be inspired to solve the problems and to think creatively in your space because you don't i think that's a great way like what aren't we asking we don't even know You know, and so, you know, some of those types of things. Okay, so education, as we push, if we look at 10 years from now, Uh and we're looking at 66% of students are disengaged and that the system really, you know, we're not necessarily trying to maybe fix the system, but we're trying to create innovation within the system to see what gets created if we really place an emphasis on ecosystem development, value networks, some of, you know, releasing some of this funding so, you know, we can create new opportunities and get creative, what would be your hope for, you know, 10 years out as people, as you focus in on some of this work?
1: Mm -hmm. Well, I guess I'll bring it back to what I wish I had for my own kids right now. I've got uh, two sons in middle school and a daughter that's in upper elementary school. And um, I wish that schooling was a little bit more customizable to their needs. They've got great teachers where they're at, um, great programs that they're involved in. Um, but there's also things that I wish they had that just, frankly, you know, to no fault of the school just aren't available at the schools that they're at. Um, so I hope to see a future where, where, The boundaries between what's school and what's not school aren't so hard, aren't so rigid, um, where we can actually have both the funding and the mechanisms to say, hey, look, you know, you may, instead of getting all of your education within a school building, you may come to school for a really great math class and to participate in the band program. And then you may actually go learn history from someone in the community who's a who's a, a expert on local history as you're learning local history, um, and that the the way that we track what gets credited as a you know earning credit for learning, the that it is adaptable to allow for kids to really you know demonstrate what the the learning they've mastered no matter where they master it. And um, for the funding to go to, you know, the broad array of experiences where they may, you know, they may actually learn and gain valuable, you know, skills or even life experiences. Um, so that's that's what I hope to see.
0: I love it. I'm all in. I'm all in. Um, Thomas, you know, thank you for this. And as we finish up, I'm, I'm just wondering one last thing, right, you know, as, as we kind of go through this. Um, what would what what's like? Give us uh, maybe a shout out to a place. You know, whether it's in the report, you've you've given us kind of two, but give us. I I love like highlighting the good work that's happening out there because we get so negative. So as we finish that up, give one last shout out to somebody or or an organization or a school that's like, go check this place out. They're doing good work. Yeah. Well, one of my favorites,
1: and I I just visited them back in November is the map academy in plymouth massachusetts um i did a report on them back in uh i, I want to say it was like 2020 2021 i can't remember time gets blurry since COVID. yeah um but anyway i think of them as a, a really cool program the founders there were really focused on students who have dropped out who have totally disengaged for student from school and they really from the ground up figured out how do we design school in a way that works for those kind of students that doesn't, and also that doesn't just, you know, get them back in a classroom for enough hours to earn their diploma, but really re-engages them with learning and helps them go from, you know, struggling in life and being disengaged from school to being engaged and on a path to some, you know, to post-secondary success, whether that's on a path to college or on a path to a career. Um, And so they've really done a great job kind of figuring out how do we both create the flexibility to best serve students in those circumstances and create and bring in all the wraparounds, the things that go beyond just classroom academics to give them the support they need to be successful. So
0: I've been thrilled by what they've been doing, a huge fan of their work. Oh, that's great. I love it. I love it. I love sharing the good work that educators are doing and people are doing all over the country and even the world to be able to say, hey, you know what, what could we imagine anew? So Thomas, Thank you so much again for your time, and I'll make sure people get connected with with your work and with you.
1: Well, thank you, Eric. This has been fun.